So before we go to this week's episode of The Weekly Skeptic, a word from one of our sponsors. LifeGuruAI.com brings you the wisdom of AI, providing personalized insights and practical advice tailored to your unique journey through life. Whether you're seeking direction in your career, aiming to enhance your personal wellness, or eager to embark on a path of self-improvement, our AI mentor is available at any moment to offer thoughtful, precise counsel. The platform is intuitively designed to simplify life's complexities, empowering you with clear, actionable guidance. With LifeGuru AI, you gain more than just answers. You unlock a deeper understanding of your own potential and direction. Start crafting a more fulfilling life today with LifeGuruAI.com. That's all one word, LifeGuruAI.com, and embrace the clarity that comes with every inquiry. Experience the transformation with LifeGuru AI, your AI-powered pathway to a limitless life. Welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 63. I'm Nick Dixon, here with David Cameron, acolyte Toby Young. Coming up, the shock wrist shuffle in the Tory pie, reflections on the Armistice Day march, and Farage gets wild in the jungle, plus loads more, and a bumper peak woke. But Toby, we have to start with the reshuffle called the wrist shuffle, which is quite a hard sort of pun to do because they're virtually the same word, but I'm saying wrist like Rishi or Rishi, and I'm copying it off Christopher Hope at GB News. And... um. So much has happened. Cameron is back. Who saw that coming? Basically no one, unless you have any secret contacts that you could tell us about. We've got a Suelis Bravman sacked. We've got Estimate Vey back as an anti-woke minister of some sort. We've got Andrea Jenkins writing a letter that was so bonkers, I actually thought it was parody. We've got James Cleverly back as Home Secretary or, or appointed as Home Secretary. We've got the Rwanda deal coming up and who knows what's going to happen with that now. And we've got a general civil war in the Tory party, I don't even know where to start. Should we start with Cameron? That was mad, wasn't it? Your mate Cameron from, from college. That was surprising, yes. Um, according to a story in The Telegraph this morning, it was suggested by William Hague. So Rishi initially approached William Hague about becoming Foreign Secretary um, because I guess he needed to replace Suella Braverman and James Cleverly was the obvious choice. Um, but um, William Hague said no and suggested David Cameron and Seemingly, that suggestion landed quite well with Rishi and his team. It is an odd one. Um, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, um, uh, one interpretation is that um, Rishi and his team in Downing Street um, have been looking at the focus groups, looking at the polling numbers, digesting the data, and they've decided that the red wall is lost. There's really no point in leaning into the culture war. Their best hope of damage limitation is to hang on to some seats in the southeast, and they think Cameron will help them do that, and Suella definitely won't. So they've kind of pivoted from Suella to Cameron. Um, you know, I guess he has kind of you know, uh, you know, there's quite a lot going on in the world, quite a lot going on in the Middle East. He has some credibility amongst world leaders because he himself is a former PM, and you know, he's dealt with some of them, mano a mano or man to woman. Um, so you know, I guess there's sort of an argument given that we're in a period of particular turmoil in which the Third World War could break out. We need someone with a bit of gravitas and experience in the foreign office, talking to world leaders, um, helping to negotiate deals, if any deals are to be had and so forth. So maybe there is a kind of political, kind of non-Machiavellian 
explanation for it. But yeah, it was a bit of a shocker. I mean, one other one other theory is that it was a dead cat. You know, um, Rishi wanted not wanted to distract people from the f- sacking Suella. I mean, given that lots of Tory voters agree with Suella on things like two tier policing and the small boats and. Rwanda, um, you know, she does seem to speak for the average Tory voter in a way that many other members of the cabinet, certainly not Rishi Sunak, Sunak do. Um, so, in order to distract Tory voters from the fact that he was essentially throwing their tribune under a bus, he appointed David Cameron as if to say, "Look over there." Um, and to a certain extent, that's been effective. You know, the, the focus of the media attention has been on the Cameron appointment rather than. As well as sacking, or at least they've got sort of you know 50 50 airtime. Um, but yeah, I didn't quite know what to make of it. I've known David Cameron for you know um, uh, quite some time more than 40 years, I guess. I first met him in 1985 when I was doing politics, philosophy, and economics at Brazenose, and I was in my third year and he was in the new first year intake. And I remember meeting him and having a quick chat about politics with him. And he identified himself then as a dry as dust Thatcherite. And um, unlike the typical journey, he seems to have been getting more and more left wing since he was sort of 19 instead of more and more right wing. Uh, Back then, though, his politics were very sound. Yeah, it's interesting that you know him. I mean, I know you know everyone. Um, And I'll, I'll ask you maybe more about that. But it's it's funny that he got the call second, yeah, because Haig is Rishi's big mentor, isn't he? And they're big mates. So it's quite funny that that's how desperate he was to come back, right? He's out there on his pig farm or whatever it is. And he's just, by the way, it was quite bold of him to buy a pig farm after he'd been accused of having sort of intercourse with a pig. Because then there's all these pictures of him with a pig. I mean, that's a man with a sort of strong self-esteem that, you know, doesn't think, should I go into piggery when I've already been accused of another <laughs> sort of kind of piggery? But um I don't figure he's a word, is it? But um, he's he's anyway. He's there at his farm. He gets a call, and he, you know, call David Cameron. He's not even first. He's like, hey, I've already called William Hay, but just wondering if you, yes, you know, just instantly, <laughs> yes. He's so bored, like he's retired on his farm. You know, he has to get back in the action. That's how I picture it. Just desperate to come back because normally to come back and accept a more humble role and be called second. I mean, maybe he didn't know that part, but that's quite humble, isn't it? So I think he just was desperate yeah, to get back in obviously- the fray. Well, I think it, it's a form of rehabilitation, isn't it? It's um, it's it's becoming respectable again, or being thought respectable enough to appoint to one of the great offices of state. I think he was very um, hurt by the Greenskill scandal um, and felt he'd been, you know, publicly disgraced um, and would have to withdraw from public life, but hopefully not permanently. And so, this for him is an opportunity for rehabilitation. Uh, so, I think that 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 that's partly why. He said yes. I mean, I'm not basing this on the inside baseball. That's just my psychological reading of, of, of why he said yes to this. And presumably, yes, quite quickly. I'm sure you're right about that. Um, it's an odd move for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's odd because, you know, only six weeks ago at the Conservative Party conference, um, Rishi's kind of big idea, seemingly, was to kind of reinvent himself as a change candidate and try and put some distance between himself and his conservative predecessors in Downing Street, uh, blaming them for kind of uh, not doing enough to 
change things, but for just kind of perpetuating the status quo. And he was somehow trying to compete with Keir Starmer and position himself as a change candidate at the next general election. But it's quite difficult to sustain that narrative if one of your most senior appointees is a former prime minister, precisely the person you blamed at the Tory party conference for doing too much to maintain the status quo. Um, In addition, it sort of sends a message to the Conservative Parliamentary Party that, you know, there was simply no one good enough amongst the, you know, 350 plus MPs, whatever it is, um, uh, who, who, who could have possibly served as foreign secretary. So he had to kind of go for a commoner and in the process, make him a lord so he could appoint him. But not not initially, you know, fishing in the pool he's supposed to be fishing in. Uh, that's a bit insulting to them. Um, and um, I guess it's, uh, there was another another reason it's odd too, which is, um, yeah, it's, um, you know, what is Britain's flagship foreign policy? Well, it's Brexit and it's making Brexit work. Um, and David Cameron famously campaigned for Remain and resigned precisely because Brexit won in the EU referendum and he didn't think he could implement that policy because he clearly didn't believe in it. Um, And uh, I mean, I actually did have a conversation with him about that. And I said, I thought it was um, a bit disappointing that he had resigned and he, ideally, he would have just remained neutral, not taken sides on that issue and just agreed to implement whatever the decision of the British people was. And by resigning, he created a kind of rumbling crisis, which which we haven't really kind of got over yet. Um, And had he stayed in power to implement the policy, you know, we'd probably be in a much better place than than we are. Um, uh, but he had no regrets. He just said it would have been you know impossible for him to enact Brexit, having campaigned for Remain. He had no choice. He felt having you know taken sides when the other side won, not his side. He felt no choice but to resign. So why is he then coming back? I mean, it's not as if uh, we changed that policy. So how is he going to be you know a credible advocate for you know Brexit Britain? If um, if he's still you know a committed Remainer, perhaps he perhaps he's perhaps he's come around to it. Perhaps he's accommodated himself to it. And in reality, I suspect it's because he did suffer this kind of uh, public shaming that he just finds the, the 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 opportunity to rehabilitate himself in this way by coming back as foreign secretary irresistible. Well, let me be far more harsh than you've been. So, firstly, I mean, he's not just that he's a Remainer. He's a sort of er Remainer. He's the guy that called the referendum and campaign for Remain. So he's like the archetypal Remainer, right? So it's kind of absurd in that way. Not only that, he's the heir to Blair, as he as he famously said himself, I believe. And so, as Carl Benjamin always says, this proves that the Tories are trapped in the Blairite paradigm. And it's an insult to the members and the country. I mean, they've proved they're out of ideas, they're out of touch with the members, they're out of touch with the country. You've got a, a leader who was not elected by the people and was not elected by the members, bringing back an, a former prime minister who's Who's, who's had to resign. So that's absurd. You mentioned that his views used to be sound, and that reminds me of Peter Hitchens' documentary you can still find on YouTube, The Toff at the Top, where he shows how Cameron started off quite conservative, basically didn't get anywhere in terms of winning his seat or you know the response on the doorstep sort of thing. So he just pivoted to basically this new Labour stuff, and he went full-on social lib, obviously the gay marriage stuff, but also the A-list, where he's obsessed with diversity in the cabinet, which ironically is probably why we got Liz Truss. But um, he got all these socially liberal causes. And you, uh, for the dead cat thing we can get onto when we talk about Swella Brabham in a way, because it's kind of weird to use a, the sacking of Swella Brabham is bad and then distract with an, an actually another bad thing. I mean, a dead cat should not surely be worse than the original thing or, or arguably just as bad. But the big point really, and maybe we'll get onto this more, I don't know, maybe we'll get onto it now if you want, is the 
failure to address the tectonic shift in politics since 2016, whereby the Tories are still trying to go back to the pre-Brexit era. We And there was a good article about this uh, in the Telegraph you sent me today. Really, we're in a new era now where it's nationalism versus globalism, something like that. It's it's not it's not the old Tory thing. It's not left versus right. There's been a realignment of politics, but our parties, as many people have pointed out, don't represent that. And this this is just a desperate sign of the Tories trying to go back in an almost literal way, trying to turn back time to the David Cameron era. But we're in a new era that they're failing to reckon with. So um, in New York, there's this great expression um, uh, which you may or may not have heard of, which is whenever anything happens. The first question you ask is, is it good for the Jews? And this kind of, I think, stems from, you know, um, Jewish Americans seeing everything through a lens of whether it's good or bad for their people. Uh, but it's become a kind of general phrase which Jews and non-Jews alike use. And what it means is, is it good for our side? Is it good for our team, our cause? Just and quickly, I think uh, I've heard that every night from working with Lewis Schaefer, but yes. Okay, sorry. Um, uh, so you know all about it. But um, I think... This is good for the Jews, and I'll explain why in the metaphorical sense. Um, let's suppose that, as you say, um, this reflects um, a schism within the Conservative Party between what Steve Davis in this article in um, uh, The Telegraph, which you just referred to, describes as a conflict between the National Conservatives and the Liberal Conservatives. One are globalist, the other are kind of uh, patriotic, nationalistic. Uh, one are liberal on economics, the other are more interventionist, protectionist on economics, etc. We're all familiar with the with this schism. Um, and the Conservative Party is a coalition uh, of those two groups, as well as some other groups. And we have people like, you know, Danny Kruger, Miriam Cates, um, uh, Suella Braverman, maybe Kami Badenoch, maybe not on the national conservative side, all the people that spoke at NatCon and on the national liberal side, you know, we have people like Rishi uh, and really the standard bearer of the kind of, uh, sorry, of the liberal conservatives is probably David Cameron. So this feels like a victory for the liberal conservatives and a purge of the national conservatives, although there have been, you know, a couple of, you know, uh, bones thrown to the NatCons, like making Esther McVeigh, a cabinet office minister, kind of supposedly, you know, the minister for common sense is going to be doing something about woke excess in the civil service. Um, you know, uh, and James Cleverly probably leans more towards national conservative than liberal conservative, and he's the new home secretary. Um, uh, but, but generally speaking, it represents a triumph of the liberal conservatives in the conservative civil war. And that seems to be the platform on which they'll fight the next general election. And they think they can do better than if they fight on a kind of national conservative platform or more of a coalition platform. Why is that good for our side? Well, assuming that, you know, we're both broadly speaking on the national conservative side, although we can discuss that. You're probably much, much more firmly on that side than I am. But um, why it's good for your side is that the conservatives will almost certainly be wiped out at the next general election. Had they gone into that, that election, having leaned into the culture war, having embraced some of the flagship NatCon policies um, and, and been wiped out, the liberal conservatives would have said, we tried, we tried what you want. We tried embracing patriotic, conservative nationalism. We tried prioritizing the family. Uh, 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 we, we tried to do something about declining birth rates. The, the, the electorate rejected that. 
We tried to do something about controlling immigration, rejected by the electorate. That's not going to fly. We need to reinvent ourselves as a much more liberal, centrist party. But if they're going into the general election fighting on a more centrist, liberal platform and they get wiped out, that will empower the NETCON side in the kind of, you know, post-election kind of smoking ruin that is the Conservative Party. Incidentally, um, I was talking to um, a Conservative insider about what the result of the next con- of the general election will be, and he said something which I thought was quite funny. He said he's a Southampton fan, and other insiders can probably guess what I'm talking about here. Big Southampton fan, brought up in South, well, brought up near to Southampton, support Southampton. He said, "Here's the cho- here's what's going to happen. Here's what's here's what the Conservative Party is going to look like uh, after the next general election. It'll either look like Southampton after the Second World War, which was more or less." raised to the ground by German bombers. They had to rebuild from the ground up. So it'll either look like that, you know, a smoking ruin, or it'll be more like Hiroshima. <laughs> um, so that's the choice. It's uh, disaster or apocalypse. Um, and he doesn't think it's, it's going to be somewhere, he thinks, uh, between those two. It's not going to be better than an absolute disaster. But given, given that it's going to be an absolute disaster, and we've argued about that before, um, uh, I'm, I'm coming around to that view. I, I think I was kind of being naively optimistic to think that perhaps, you know, Rishi could do enough to prevent Keir Starmer winning an overall majority. I'm, I'm now becoming increasingly pessimistic about that. Um, so given that the Tories will almost certainly be wiped out, it's probably helpful to the NatCon side that Rishi's pivoted in the way he has to the Liberal Conservative side, because we'll be able to blame that, in part anyway, for the election defeat. And his successor will therefore almost certainly be either Suella or someone like Kemi Bednock, possibly James Cleverly. Well, you have been accused of naive optimism in some of our reviews, Toby, but I mean, you're probably happier that way. But um, here's, an, here's another counter to maybe this is conspiratorial, but but actually, if you're saying they can go for the we tried thing, or they could have done that, which is why it's good for us. But if Sunak is unseated before the next election, that throws that problem back to us. So if Suella or someone did come in, which there is talk of, then that, that, yes. then that really... And they could even do that as a tactic. This is where it gets conspiratorial. If the if the lib side of the Tories wanted to throw us under the bus, they could bring in. They could they could let that happen. Let us lose. Let our side of or my side of the party, because I'm not sure you're on it, but let the uh, not, let the more right wing side of the party, whatever, lose before the next election, and then come back with a, another mm. Cameron type. Mm. And that's getting a bit complex. Do you think that will actually happen? That Rishi will go. Some people think he, he will. Well, I can't. I mean, I can't see why Team Suella or Team Kemi, or even Team Cleverly, would want to depose Rishi now and replace him less than 12 months before the next general election, given that they're unlikely to be prime minister after that election and they'd have to step down as someone else would succeed them. On the other hand, maybe Suella thinks better to be PM for nine months than leader of the opposition for five years and then only to lose the next general election and have to stand down then. Maybe she's thinking, you know, at least I can I can be, you know, Britain's first female prime minister of colour and parlay that into a successful career on the after-dinner speaking circuit, maybe even get a UN ambassadorship of some kind, sit on the board of various global corporations. Who knows? Um, but, and last uh, longer than Liz Truss. Last longer than Liz Truss, so at least she doesn't have to worry and, about And no one can Britain's really turn it down. Serving. Who yep. can turn down Prime Minister just in case it's the were a bad time? Takes someone pretty big to do that. Yeah, but I think if 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 um I don't think I mean I 
I think uh, maybe she'll just go into kind of kamikaze mode and want to bring down the house now that she's been sacked and and punish Rishi. She supposedly got some, you know, some dirt she's about to tip onto his head, but who knows what it is and whether it really will be as damaging as as, as people are claiming. She feels betrayed because she helped him get elected and she's going to drop some bomb on this Rwanda thing. She's got some big scathing letter plan and yeah, some other stuff. So let's see. I imagine what it is is you know um, some documentary evidence that he's not as not as sincere as he would like us to believe about reducing the number of small boats arriving on our shores, something like that. Right, she's got a WhatsApp of him saying, "I love small boats. I like big boats. More <laughs> I, dinghies, please." I had a, I had a small boat as a child, um, and uh, yeah, I've got a <laughs> sentimental affection for them. Whenever I see one, it brings a warm glow to my heart. Yeah, I want to destroy the UK, lol. Um, yeah, it's just all in the in the leaks. Because there are WhatsApp leaks. I haven't had time to look at them yet. I meant to do that, but there's been these leaked WhatsApps, hasn't there? On the um, philosophical side, though, I wanted to just look at that Steve Davis article in The Telegraph. And there was a few quibbles and questions I had. I mean, one of them, he's saying the divide is between the, you know, the more Thatcherite types and the ones who want the government to have an active role in economic life, promoting things like family formation, stable employment, and a collective national identity. So inter alia strict immigration controls to me that's not quite right i mean yeah maybe yeah we could have some sort of tax incentives for families and maybe we need to do something we do need to do something about the birth rate but then stable employment that sounds a bit like universal basic income to me and then when he talks about inter alia strict immigration to me it's more like immigration is the big one this this especially with what we've seen lately with the protests to me the national conservative side is yeah it is more interventionist perhaps but I think there's loads of people who are, they've not gone to NatCon. They're just going, we can't, immigration's out of control. They're not particularly thinking about family formation. They are, they are pro-family, but stable employment. I just think that oversells the amount of kind of quasi-socialism that that side wants. I think it's much more the national identity point, the, the last point. That's obviously the main one by far, mm. right? Um, yes. I mean, it, and, it also says that, that, that there is this hybrid between people who are, you know, Thatcherite on economics, but um, sh- sh- but but socially conservative, um, and um, yeah. but he says you know that, 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 that there's no there's no future for that particular kind of weird coalition. But that, that's the kind of that's where I am. I think <laughs> that's where I am. I was a bit good about that. I thought that dang, I think that's more me. Yeah, I, I, I think that's where David Frost is. That's where David Frost is as well. That's where Farage is. I know we're going to get on to Farage, but the funny thing about Farage is is that he is a Thatcherite, but also a staunch nationalist and a, a, a user of binoculars to check how many small boats are coming over. So, I mean, that kind of is, I think, why he's the perfect person. So that's why I disagree with the article. I mean, it ends by saying that Suella Bravman is the wrong person. He says, if there is a populist breakaway or the National Conservatives capture the party, then in either case, they should avoid the kind of media-driven and US-influenced politics we've seen from Suella Bravman. Success for National Conservatism in the UK requires attention to the same concerns as those raised by their counterparts in the US, but a different kind of rhetoric that appeals to a wider sensibility. And this is where he's saying Suella's gone wrong, and we need someone essentially more moderate or with a more broad understanding, a sort of more broad pitch. So maybe that is Farage, though, because, I mean, it must be. I mean, it has to be. He, to no, me, I'm saying Farage 2029, uh, I, <laughs> but but he is that weird mixture of the thing that Davis is claiming won't work, but I think that will work. Yeah, I mean, I think he, he, he Davis doesn't like Suella because he thinks she's channeling the American right, that she's too Trump-like in her 
rhetoric about immigration, hate marches, and so forth, um, anti-European, um, nationalistic. Um, uh, and he thinks that just doesn't play well enough in the UK for her to be a convincing leader of a national political party and win a general election. He may be right about that. Um, uh, and I think, you know, I'm a little concerned about Kemi um, uh, drifting to the left on a variety of issues such as um, conversion therapy. But um, I think she, she, she tonally, rhetorically, her pitch is um, more appealing I think she 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 gets it right in a way that Suella doesn't. So I still le- even though I agree with more of Suella's positions than I do Kemi, and I have reservations about some of Kemi's inclinations, which I don't have about Suella's. Nonetheless, I think Kemi has a kind of more statesmanlike um, uh, uh, gravitas um, and is a more plausible um, national leader than, than Suella. Did you see the story about the row between Kemi and Michael Gove? Um, there was a story no. in the in the, in the uh, I think it was in the was it in the Telegraph I think it was saying that um, they'd fallen out they'd fallen out because Michael Gove had apparently had an affair with an acquaintance of Kemi's and Kemi knows the husband and the wife and was disappointed and cross with Michael for having an affair with the wife and breaking up the marriage. Oh, the um, wife. Uh, I wasn't the sure wife. who he had an yeah, affair with. I was in the wife. The wife. But people people have expressed cynicism about this story. They said, first of all, it serves Kemi's purposes by supposedly creating a rift between her and Michael, which will reassure those who are worried that Kemi's getting too close to Michael and is effectively uh, a puppet of Michael's. Um, and secondly, it helps Michael because it accuses him of having an affair with a woman and therefore scotches rumours <laughs> that he might be gay. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it, I think actually, I think um, uh, that's too cynical and it's probably true. And I think there is a genuine rift between them. I don't think it's invented. People often kind of read too much into these things when taking them at face value is often, you know, true. Um, I'd be, yeah. I'd be very careful messing with Gove in that kind of, in those kind of contretemps because two two areas I wouldn't want to mess with Gove: drinking competitions and being the most Machiavellian. I just I think I'd. It's not that I I've got nothing against Gove by the way. I just think he's acknowledged to be great at those two things. Um, can I just say one more thing from the piece, which is just that bit you referred to? He says these two different visions are increasingly incompatible and impossible to contain within the one party. Well, I agree on that. The group are increasingly stranded are those who try to combine liberal free market economics with cultural traditionalism and nationalism. And that is where I question, because that is kind of a libertarian stance. I mean, I suppose libertarians don't do very well in elections and things, but if you, it's all, that's why it's all about the borders. Because what libertarians always say is you can have a welfare state or you can have open borders. You can't have both. So they say, mm-hmm. let's close the borders and we can then have things like welfare and, and so on. So I, I don't think it's completely incompatible to have a free market, but with strong borders. But yeah, you can't have a total globalist free for all. But yeah, it, I mean, yeah. it's tricky, isn't it? Maybe it is going to go more towards the. I don't know who would win that. It did, does did, seem like. Go on. It was say. Did, did I? I can't remember whether I talked about um, Peter Thiel's Roger Scruton Memorial lecture last week. Can you remember? Um, he, he came up he, with quite an interesting analysis in which he compared the current Conservative Party with the current current Labour Party, and he said that. Um, 
one of the reasons he thought the Conservatives long term enjoyed an advantage over Labour. So the premise was that um, the deregulation that had occurred under Thatcher, the Big Bang, uh, privatisation of various nationalised industries and so forth, that kind of programme of deregulation had resulted in a spurt of economic growth. And that had sustained Thatcher, enabled the Conservatives to win three general elections on the trot. Um, The steam had eventually run out. Labour then won. And Labour came up with an equivalent one-shot deal to increase growth, which was to embrace globalisation. But he said the difference between the Conservatives and Labour is that the Conservatives recognise that Margaret Thatcher's trick can't be repeated and that if they are going to um, uh, produce another growth spurt for the British economy, they have to come up with something other than deregulation, lowering taxes um, uh, or globalisation. Whereas Labour, Keir Starmer, think they can double down on globalisation and somehow achieve a second growth spurt, that they haven't quite squeezed that lemon dry yet, whereas he thinks they have squeezed that lemon dry, but the Thatcherite lemon's also been squeezed dry. But the advantage we enjoy is we recognise that we're going to have to come up with some new thinking if we're going to stimulate economic growth, whereas Labour think they can just repeat a trick they've already pulled off. Very interesting. Is Is the new thinking to close the borders but go big on AI and get robots to do stuff. I think. I think. Insofar as Labour have another rabbit in their hat, they think that globalisation married to AI will enable them to squeeze a few more drops of lemon juice out of globalisation and um, a bit more, a bit more growth. Um, that seems to be Tony Blair's kind of um, guiding principle at the moment. Hence, is kind of linking up with um, uh, Oracle, um, but. Um, uh, 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 Peter Thiel was very sceptical about that. But can't you do AI with tough immigration controls and AI does the work that maybe low-skilled you know, low workers would have done? Yeah, or, or, or could, you, could you kind of enlist AI to come up with kind of um, further deregulation that's not going to you know, destabilise the economy, result in lots of businesses going bankrupt and lots of corruption and... Etc. Um, maybe 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 there'll be a way of enlisting AI to squeeze a, full, a few more drops out of the deregulation lemon too. But mm. Peter Thiel thought that was um, a blind alley. You know, AI not going to save us. So what does he think will will save us and will be the he, new he, thinking? We, we, he didn't. He didn't have. He didn't have a solution. He's just good at diagnosing <laughs> the problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pity. But yeah, it definitely isn't immigration, which doesn't even help us economically. I, I mean, if you look at Douglas Murray's analysis in Strange Death of Europe. And uh, I'm not an economics expert, so I'm just going to trust that because it suits my my uh, beliefs. But um, all right, so that's some of the philosophical side. It's going to be very interesting. We've covered the swell of Robin sacking there, obviously. What we haven't covered is whether you think it was, aside from the Cameron part, whether you think it was necessary for Rishi to have some sort of authority because she had undermined him, or was it just a bad idea? Yeah, I mean, I didn't quite understand um, the... Uh, argument that because she failed to tone down her article in the Times about two-tier policing, she had undermined his authority. She'd flagrantly disobeyed 
uh, a suggestion by Downing Street that she toned down that article. According to, I think it was a piece by David Frost, he can think of numerous occasions on which you know ministers have written comment pieces for broadsheets and annoyed Downing Street in the process. And it hasn't been perceived to be a terrible blow to the prime minister's authority. So that was a kind of odd story. It felt more as though, you know, the kind of liberal media and the Labour Party and the liberal side of the parliamentary conservative party were leaping on that um, as a reason to apply pressure on Rishi to sack her because they, they're suffering from braverment derangement syndrome. They don't like her nationalist rhetoric. They don't like her anti-immigration rhetoric. Um, they didn't like her describing the pro-Palestinian marches as hate marches. They think she's a divisive, hard-right populist demagogue in the Marine Le Pen mould. And so they just absolutely loathe and detest her. And so they saw this as an opportunity to apply pressure on Rishi to get rid of her. And that, that feels right to me. It feels like that was a pretext for them to pile on the pressure. It wasn't the real reason. The real reason is they just loathe her because of what she seems to stand for, because of her, you know, she's slightly outside the kind of liberal media's Overton window. I agree with that. And I, we've seen that in other companies that perhaps I won't name, but we do see a a trope whereby people can be sacked and you go, why were they sat for that? That's nothing, but it's because they wanted to sack them anyway. Six things ago, this is quite normal. And I certainly spoke to a, a very insightful pundit last night who, who said the same. He thought that was the reason as well. I think it is. The professional managerial class hates Suella. Um, but actually, she's in line with the people, or certainly a large chunk of them. But this has always been the case. The Tories have never got to grips with it. Going all the way back to Powell, they've never got to grips with the fact that the population has one view on immigration and the political class has another and it's a much more cautious and sort of frightened view about being forthright about it because of their circles they move in. We, and they've not managed to tackle this problem. And she's just bold and straightforward about it. Maybe not always the perfect language, but yeah, terrible idea to get rid of it for, for those reasons, I think. But what about the uh, Minister for Common Sense, Esther McVeigh, who seems very nice from everything I've heard. And I've, I've met people who work for her and, and they say she's cool as well. And uh, she's always been nice to me the brief times I've met her. And she has had to leave GB News. Well, that's sad, but she's going to be a minister without portfolio, but loosely she's going to be the minister for common sense or anti-wokery. I mean, does that have much chance of doing anything? Well, that remains to be seen. And I discussed this with the Legislative Affairs Director of the Free Speech Union yesterday, and we were trying to think if there are any you know, policies we've got in our policy bag um, that we could... Um, try and interest her in because I think she'll be looking for some quick wins. Um, she hasn't got long after all, and uh, she doesn't want it to seem just like a kind of, um, you know, a fig leaf job to kind of try and ginger up Rishi's position with the right. She'll want to actually get some things done and make it seem like she's actually being effective. So I'm trying to think of, you know, quick wins that she could enjoy um, in that position. Uh, so far, efforts to try and um, uh, uh, persuade Whitehall departments to um, uh, draw back from EDI, unconscious bias training, anti-racism training, links to Stonewall, gendered intelligence and the rest of it, introducing gender neutral toilets and the whole shebang. Um, so far, they prove very unsuccessful, but um, there might be some there might be some things she could do. I'm 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 going to I'm going to try and come up with some suggestions for her. I've always got on with her very well and enjoyed being on her and Phil's show on, on GB News as well. 
Yeah, she seems cool, but it's it really it is a bit of a sop or a or as you said a fig leaf, olive branch, whatever it is to to the, to the right of the party. It's obviously it's not going to be enough given they've got rid of Swell and brought in Cameron. But I hope she can do something. It's mad that they the Tories would even consider not scrapping every EDI department in the country. I mean, I mean, what possible reason for buying into equity? Equity, you're not communist. I mean, it's it's absolutely insane. I think the, what the, about, the, the, oh, the difficulty, Nick, is that um, I'm not sure they have the power to do it. Um, right. You know, the the, the cabinet office um, commissioned. Uh, I think that yeah, the, the, the cabinet office um, and the government equalities office, I think, jointly commissioned a piece of work from the nudge unit, which was then part of the cabinet office, into. Uh, they, they wanted them. They wanted the nudge unit to review the evidence about how effective EDI training is, um, and in particular, unconscious bias training. You know, does it actually reduce discrimination and prejudice in the workplace? Um, and they they did a meta analysis of all the research evidence and concluded that not only uh, was it um, nearly always completely ineffective, but in some cases it had the opposite of its intended effect. So actually, discriminatory behavior in workplaces that had undergone unconscious bias training actually increased after the unconscious bias training rather than fell. Uh, And so on the basis of this meta-analysis, the recommendation, the strong recommendation to every Whitehall department was that they should drop this nonsense. It was was counterproductive. It wasn't in any way achieving the objectives they hoped it would achieve. And of course, they all just doubled down on it, totally ignored the advice. And in light of that, it seems clear that um, there just isn't very much the cabinet office or the government equality office can do um, uh, to dissuade, you know, woke permanent secretaries from embracing this gobbledygook. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I wanted to just move on to uh, Andrea Jenkins quickly. And she tweeted that enough is enough. I've submitted my vote of no confidence letter to the chairman of the 1922. It's time for Rishi Sunak to go and replace him with a real Conservative Party leader, although she put real in inverted commas there, which is probably not the best use because <laughs> that means she's saying not real really, doesn't it? But uh, didn't need those there, Andrea. But then the letter itself, I literally had to check it wasn't a parody account, as I said, because particularly with this section, um, when she says, but then to purge the centre-right from his cabinet and then sack Suella, who was the only person in the cabinet with the balls to speak the truth of the appalling state of our streets and a two-tier policing system, that leaves Jewish community, should be the Jewish community, in fear for their lives and safety. I just couldn't believe she'd put balls in there. And um, I just thought it was, oh, this is like a parody, like an Adine Doris style parody thing. But it was actually, then I remembered, of course, she'd done the finger up thing a while ago when she gave the finger to a lot of people shouting at it. And actually, I kind of like it. I just think she, I kind of like her, Andrea Jenkins. She just, she just gets stuck in. She's from Yorkshire. Why not? She's Northern. So I like that. What did you make of the letter, Toby, or Andrew well, Jenkins in general? Yeah, the, the, let me just get the, try and get the letter up. Um, uh, it was, um, yeah, it, 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 at one point she seemed to describe Boris as unforgivable when she was trying to say the opposite. Did you, did you see that? I'm trying to, I'll get the letter up now. She says, um, she says uh, here we go. She says, um, do, 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 do. Rishi's Machiavellian involvement in getting rid of our democratically elected leader, Boris Johnson, who bravely fought for Brexit when Parliament was in deadlock, full stop. So 
There's a missing verb or something in that. There is a full stop there. And then she goes on to say, yes, Boris, the man who won the Conservative Party, a massive majority, was unforgivable enough, full stop. Sounds there as though she's saying that Boris was unforgivable. She doesn't mean that. She means getting rid of Boris was unforgivable enough. But um, yeah, it's a poorly written letter. The full stop after deadlock has ruined it. That's what's destroyed that sentence. Yeah. Because it should read, yes, Boris, uh, yeah. So yeah. I think I think I think um, yeah, <laughs> so it's I, I written don't in want, anger, I, probably not a not proofread. Written in anger and probably dictated. And I have to say, I've got a soft spot for Andrea Jenkins because um, when I was being monstered in the House of Commons in 2018, when Labour tabled an urgent question after I was appointed to the Office for Students, and one MP after another lined up to denounce me, including several Conservative MPs, a very very few Conservative MPs got on got onto their legs and defended me. And she was one of them. So um, in my book, um, she gets an enormous amount of rope. Um, uh, but I, there was another another um, grammatical correction. Who are the correction. ones that dissed you? We should name them all and we should attack them on all uh, our no, podcasts. I, 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 I've forgiven them all. I've forgiven them all. Okay. Um, but um, uh, there was quite another grammatical point made by Giles Corrin, if you saw this, but um, in the, in the, in the um, viral um, clip, of Piers Morgan trying to get Jeremy Corbyn to acknowledge that Hamas were a terrorist group. Um, uh, 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 um, James Cleverly has quote tweeted the clip and said, as Home Secretary, I can confirm that Hamas are a terror group. And then Giles Corrin has quote tweeted that and said, as a writer, I can confirm that Hamas is a terror group and is is capitalized. That, that 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 resonated with me. I'm a big one for um, I, making I, sure that organisations are referred to in the singular <laughs> and not the plural. Yeah, he's not lying, uh, listeners. Toby is obsessed with uh, <laughs> getting these things right in the Daily Skeptic to the point of kind of some would say not madness, but um, yeah, I mean it's good. You are right. You are right, though. Um, I used to always do are, uh, but you are right. I mean, well, I think you're right. I mean, at least you should stick to one or the other because I used to say like Man United are, but. Well, you, sometimes it sounds weird. You don't say Man United is. but uh, I know. It's, sometimes it's not. What about the police? The police are, the police is. The police is sounds a bit weird. Sometimes I think, I think yeah. I'm prepared to make some adjustments for what is kind of colloquially comfortable. Um, but for the most part, organisations like Hamas, the government, the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, I'll always go with singular. Okay. And did you know, by the way, that Andrea Jenkins got into the final of Miss UK? No, I didn't know that. As an 18-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Really? I did some research on her. All the northern ones seem cool. I mean, northern, you know, estimate by Andrew Jenkins. These are northern women. They're northern conservatives. Of course, they're going to be cooler than the others and, and defend you and things like that. So, I'm, I'm, but yeah, we, we didn't actually uh, mention Corbyn. We should have had that as a whole topic. I forgot about that. That was shocking. Rachel Riley counted 25 times. I didn't go through, my, through it myself. That, that Piers Morgan said, are Hamas a terrorist organization and Corbyn wouldn't answer. I mean, it was absolutely shocking. Piers Morgan, obviously a bit of a tool, but Corbyn came across so, I mean, badly, even for Corbyn. He yeah, well, he, 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 he did that thing of um, letting Piers Morgan get under his skin and he kind of lashed out at him a couple of times, lost his rag. And that's never a great look for a politician. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, um, and I, I think, yeah, Corbyn, couldn't acknowledge that Hamas are a terrorist organization because in the past he's condemned the UK government for designating Hamas a terrorist organization and famously yep. described Hamas as his friends. Um, maybe it should have been his friend, <laughs> but anyway. Um. <laughs> good, good call. 
Yeah, that's it. There's a, there's that famous clip where he calls them friends, and if and that's the part people focus on. But in the full speech, he 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 says it's a terrible mistake, something like a grave mistake, some very serious term that yes. the US, that the UK, sorry, has called them a prescribed terror organization. Yeah. So yeah, how could he possibly say it? And but by not saying it, he looks completely inhumane now which is which is it is That's, I also, his yeah, stance is it, it's odd you would have fed i mean he could have easily said you know when i described hamas as my friends and said it was a grave error to make them a prescribed terrorist organization um that was before uh, they'd committed this massacre in israel on october 7th and now i'm prepared to accept that yes they should be a prescribed terror organization he could have easily said that but um i think it not only reflects poorly on corbyn that he isn't willing to change his mind and acknowledge that they are a terrorist organization but um it also reflects badly on keir starmer because you know he was in he served as a loyal member of Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet for, you know, God God knows how many years. He campaigned for Jeremy Corbyn to become PM. So it's all very well for Keir Starmer to be on the right side of this issue now. But as a Corbyn loyalist in Corbyn's shadow cabinet, campaigning for Corbyn to become PM, he was completely on the wrong side of this. And I think surely, you know, he should experience some blowback from that too. Well, the Tories have tried to make that point, And I made that point to actually Nigel Farage. He said to me, he didn't think there was much in it because you have to back the leader at that time. And even if you think he's an idiot and that's just sort of how parties work. So, mm. you know, he doesn't even think that has much purchase. I think it has a little bit, but yeah. But then Starmer's seen as purging the Corbynites and he's seen as having done a good job on that by people. So it just doesn't get you anywhere, that argument really, even though it perhaps should. Um, just lastly, maybe on this then, we haven't mentioned James Cleverly. Is there much to mention? He's going to be Home Secretary. He hasn't been that tough on immigration and his rhetoric, although he said he'll now stop the boats, of course, which uh, he has to say, but no one thinks he's going to. And he's been quite soft on the ECHR. It's even softer Mm. than Cameron in the past. He's publicly opposed leaving it. So with this Rwanda thing, we could be forced to leave the ECHR if it's blocked. Does he have the will to do that? Does Sunak have the will to do that? Yeah, I mean, one of the... Sunak has in the past said that if the... Um, ECHR does block our attempts to deport illegal migrants to Rwanda, then he would like the UK to leave the EHRC, uh, the, the, the European Court of Human Rights. But um, maybe he's changed his mind on that, or maybe he doesn't want to ratchet up tensions with the EU on this issue. Um, because as, as you say, James Cleverly is not in favour of leaving the um, European Convention on Human Rights. So assuming that the judgment tomorrow um, goes the wrong way for the British government. Um, uh, If it was Suella still in place, she presumably would make a huge song and dance about that and hold Rishi's feet to the fire about leaving uh, the convention. But um, I don't suppose James Cleverly will. Um, He'll say, you know, we we have to work this out another way or come up with another policy. Yeah, and that, of course, is another reason people are saying he sat Rodman now to get rid of her before that judgment. But um, or may, 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 maybe Nick, um, uh, they've got wind of the fact that the judgment is going to go in the British government's favour, and had she remained in place and been present in post when that judgment was made, that would have helped her politically and made her unsackable. She would have claimed the credit for that victory and started deporting people to Rwanda. Um, right. So that yeah, might be another so, so, possibility. In other yeah. words, either way. If, if, yeah. It depends if you really think they've been able to have a leak. Maybe they have. So Jacob Rees-Mogg was saying he doesn't think, you know, okay. if it, you know, they don't. 
he doesn't think they would have had a leak, but I suppose maybe. Well, no, I think I think I think Rishi's calculated that whichever way it goes, um, it isn't good for him or for his government um, for Suella to be in post when the judgment's delivered. Right. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Maybe we should go on to the the Armistice March. But do you want to get in our second ad, Toby? Sure. So this is an ad from. Um, one of the sponsors of London Calling, and um, he'd like to um, make uh, Weekly Skeptic listeners aware of his satirical book, Busting Anti-Vax Myths, which I have to say has been very well received by London Calling listeners who bought it. So here we go. This is a call for any blogger, YouTuber, substacker, or journalist who might want a paperback copy of the COVID satirical book, Busting Anti-Vax Myths, for their own candid review. The book, which, contrary to what the title appears to suggest, actually lampoons the totalitarian world of lockdowns and vaccine mandates, has already been reviewed positively in The European Conservative, The Conservative Woman, and in Brownstone, a review which was reprinted in The Spectator Australia. Writing in The European Conservative, Roger Watson said, This book is both hilarious and deadly serious, obliging the reader to remember all the traumas that befell us, that people mounted serious arguments in favour of them, and that they must never happen again. So if you write for a COVID dissident publication or run your own blog, YouTube channel or Substack, and you'd be interested in a paperback or digital review copy, please go to www.bustingantivaxmyths.com. That's bustingantivaxmyths, all one word, dot com, and use the contact form to arrange delivery. And as I say, I can recommend this. All the people I know that have read it have really enjoyed it. It's apparently a very funny send up of uh, everything that happened during those dreadful 18 months or so between 2020 and 2021. So Nick, should we go to talk right. about the march? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So we talked about the Armistice March, of course, last week, but that was preceding the march. Now it's actually happened and all kicked off. A few highlights. I mean, I actually missed some of it because I was just, I think I was just really busy that day, but because um, I'm trying to move house and my personal life is in chaos. But um, it was... A few things stuck out. There was the Gove incident, uh, Michael Gove getting sort of accosted and surrounded. And then the bizarre attempt at conspiracy theories by the likes of James O'Brien, who said, I might be going mad, but didn't Gove mysteriously turn up in the middle of a protest at least once before? I'm sorry he got jostled and abused, obviously, but do wonder how it's ended up on the front page of a newspaper when multiple police officers were literally injured. And I'm thinking that's that's a strange stance from old O'Brien because... Think about Michael Gove. This is a man who was uh, monitored by the person who killed Sir David Amos, whose house was visited six times, who even the Guardian reported this man considered killing Gove while he was out jogging. And he, he, you know, he visited his house. If you read the details on it, it's incredibly disturbing. I always think I wonder how Gove coped with that. So I think it's very strange that you know Gove could have literally been killed by this guy that changed his mind and killed Sir David Amos, which was horrific. But... That's not enough. It's like, oh, he's implying some sort of conspiracy theory. Why is Gove always there? It's like, what would it take for these cranks not to create these mad conspiracy theories? Anyway, then there was a sort of city car and gaslighting about it all. You know, this claim that there's, there was only violence on one side. He's, he, he put out this awful statement where he talks just about the far right thugs attacking the police, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the Palestinians are all perfect, but it's just the far right. When we've all seen these videos of people... Just, saying death to all the Jews and 
and saying stuff, stuff about Hitler. And there was obviously horrific violence and anti-Semitism on that side. So the gaslighting and lies from Sadiq Khan. Channel 4, I believe, did the same and had to actually delete a tweet. But what was your overall take, Toby, or, or reply to any of that? Yeah, well, I have heard one conspiracy theory about the fact that so many so-called far-right protesters were arrested on Saturday. Uh, far more, I think, even in actual numbers, not just proportionally, than were arrested on the other side amongst the pro-Palestinian protesters. Um, and the conspiracy theory goes that um, Mark Rowley um, wanted to be able to blame any public disorder on far-right counter-protesters uh, than the pro-Palestinian protesters. He knew that people would blame Suella Braverman for the fact that Tommy Robinson and his pals showed up. Um, and if they then arrested most of them and blamed them for the outbreak of public disorder, uh, particularly at the Cenotaph, then that would seal Suella Braverman's fate. Um, all he had to do was was arrest these people and the media, liberal Tories, the Labour Parliamentary Party would do the rest. They would blame Suella for the fact that there had been outbreaks of public disorder on this otherwise peaceful day. Um, uh, and, uh, and Suella would be blamed and, and she'd eventually get the sack. And this was Mark Rowley's Machiavellian revenge on the woman who'd accused him of engaging in two-tier policing. He effectively sealed the fate of his political enemy by arresting far more um, counter-protesters than he did protesters, even though, as you say, Nick, there were clearly many, many more lawbreakers on the pro-Palestinian side than there were amongst the counter-protesters. It's interesting. I've heard a conspiracy going around that Tommy Robinson is like, why is he back on X? Notice he suddenly jumped into the taxi Basically, all these people saying that he's like a stooge and a plant to to get the you know get discredit the patriot side and get them called far right. I think that would be extraordinary if Tommy Robinson, with everything he's been through, solitary confinement, losing all that weight where he can only eat cans of tuna in prison, one of the most one of the most hated men in the uh, in in the country, and the amount of stuff he's been through, in multiple arrests and fights and all sorts, and and th- his family being threatened and having to move locations, have security. All that is actually just a, a deep state plan. I think is an, such an absurd idea. Um, it is an absurd idea. But that's and another I, one that's been going I, I, around. That's absurd. And I don't actually, I don't, I don't um, think the Mark Rowley conspiracy theory is true either. I just think uh, Sorella was right. Uh, the Met does engage in two tier policing, and you know, um, white working class men are held to a much higher standard by the Metropolitan Police than black and brown people, and. Um, you know, um, so they arrest them in far greater numbers, um, even though there was much more lawbreaking amongst the pro-Palestinians. Uh, also, I suppose, you know, there's a practical point too, which is if you've got kind of a, a small knot of counter-protesters, it's easier to arrest all of them than it is to arrest 300,000 pro-Palestinian protesters or even some of them because, you know, that's going to cause a riot. Um, uh, but even allowing for that practical difficulty, they definitely seem to have come down much more heavily on the counter-protesters than they did on the protesters. And they still haven't arrested, I don't think, the two guys pictured wearing Hamas headbands. Um, uh, I was going to go on to yeah. say something I else. I think it was 82 though. arrests, wasn't it? I think 82 arrests like of the counter-protesters. Yeah, I was there on Saturday. I went down to um, defend, quote-unquote, Churchill's statue. Um, so me and Alison Pearson and some other members of the 
British Friends of Israel group who came up with the October Declaration. We went down, we stood in front of Churchill statue with a Friends of Israel October Declaration banner. And when we initially got there, the space was partly occupied by a group, I think, calling themselves the Football Lads, but who were later, you know, um, uh, named far right, described as far right counter protesters by the liberal media. Um, and, you know, I, I, was, I sort of felt a bit ambivalent about the fact that the Football Lads were there sharing the space with us. I mean, on the one hand, if we were attacked by, you know, um, masked pro-Palestinian militants with spray cans and Palestinian flags that they wanted to drape over Churchill's statue, the football lads would have undoubtedly proved very useful, far more useful than the British Friends of Israel when it came to defending Churchill's statue. But on the other hand, I sort of envisaged, you know, running battles between the football lads and, you know, mask-clad, black-wearing pro-Palestinian militants and the kind of purse-lip BBC newsreader on the nine o'clock news saying, a group of far-right counter-protesters and the journalist Toby Young were engaged in running battles with <laughs> mostly peaceful pro-Palestinian protesters calling for a ceasefire at the Senator earlier today. Um, and we go Other now live. Would, yeah. we, we, we go live to um, Jane Bertley Howard outside Toby Young's home in West London, where he still has not yet appeared. <laughs> yeah, no, it would be. It'd be a group of far-right counter-protesters were also seen, including the football lads and disgraced journalist Toby Young. <laughs> Cancels from five public positions. Yeah, seen here punching a Palestinian in the face, a Palestinian child in the face. Yeah, 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 that could have easily happened. Seen here screaming at an elderly Muslim woman. uh, Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Young, uh, a pornography addict obsessed with boobs, uh, <laughs> stood next to Tommy Robinson as they kicked these people in the nuts. Yeah, that, yeah. It, I see what you mean. It's the optics, Toby. You're the optics wouldn't have been great. But anyway, happily, the um, the football lads uh, drifted off when they saw that um, uh, more you and more there. kind of bespectacled, middle-aged, intellectual pro-Israel um, supporters were arriving. Um, and I think partly because um, there were various press photographers who started snapping away and they didn't want to be photographed. But also I think they just they just thought there was going to be no trouble here and there obviously wasn't going to be any trouble. The main march was, you know, assembling an hour later at Hyde Park Corner, about a mile away, and they wanted some action and we weren't where the action was. So I think that's why they drifted off. But it was l- luckily nothing like that happened. It was very peaceful. It was actually a very lovely, moving occasion. I was very glad I went. Tommy Robinson did put out a statement saying he didn't want to be associated with you and yeah. some of your questionable stances on immigration that, that we'll talk about later that, that our audience haven't liked. But um, Toby, as we've been doing this, it's very it's, we've got breaking news and it's quite hard to cover on the podcast and read it out while listening to you. But Suella Brabham has issued her letter oh, yeah. to the Prime Minister since we've been recording and it's very hard to read the whole thing on air, but it does start, Dear Prime Minister, thank you for your phone call yesterday morning in which you asked me to leave the government, which is already like a bit of a, a diss because you're supposed to get a letter, not a call. So well, a no, call you're, supposed, already... you're supposed to do it in person. Right, but you're it's... supposed to exchange letters rather than a phone call, aren't you? Well, no, I think, I think what that's a reference to is that normally when the Prime Minister sacks someone, it's thought to be courteous to do it in person. So you ask them to come and see you and you do it in person and you thank them for their service and then there's an exchange of letters. So you come in the back door rather than the front door, which is when you're going to be appointed. Yeah. That's what I've heard. But I've also heard they're supposed to, Chris Vope said it's supposed to be an exchange of letters rather than a phone call, like public letters, which there weren't. There was just a phone call. But now the letters come out. Anyway, she says, while disappointing, this is for the best. 
just classic breakup, like a classic <laughs> kind of like, like you know. I was going to break up with you best. anyway. You know, it wasn't yeah, your yeah, idea. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We were already drifting apart, and this is better for me. She, she's going to go out and you know on the town now and uh, like do a leaper, record a track <laughs> about how she's moved on, and um, so moved on. It's scary. Um, yeah, I'm all good already. So yeah, it's too long to read, isn't it? While on the podcast, but so I'm trying to get the main points of it. But so far, all I've got is kind of sass. And um, it's very long. That's my main takeaway at the moment. Yeah, I don't, this Oxford. can't be the kind of damning evidence she's going to use to destroy him by the looks of it. This is just emphasising the areas in which they disagreed and the ways in which he disappointed her, as far as I can see. Yeah, let's have a look. Um, as on so many other issues, this is just the end of it. You sought to put off tough decisions in order to minimise political risk to yourself. In doing so, you've increased the very real risk these marches present to everyone else. That's pretty tough. In October of last year, you were given an opportunity to lead our country. It is a privilege to serve and one we should not take for granted. Service requires bravery and thinking of the common good. It is not about occupying the office as an end in itself. Someone needs to be honest. Your plan is not working. As we have endured record election defeats, your resets have failed and we are running out of time. You need to change course urgently. I may not always have found the right words, but I've always striven to give voice to the quiet majority that supported us in 2019. I've endeavoured to be honest and true to the people who put us in these privileged positions. I will, of course, continue to support the government in pursuit of policies which align with an authentic conservative agenda. Pretty tough stuff. Pretty tough Quite stuff. Hard to read yeah. because it goes out of focus when you zoom in. But I did my best. But yeah, she, it's pretty. It's classic Suella, really. Yeah, and she accuses him of um, not having a plan B, um, just in case the um, European Court's decision goes against. Um, uh, being, it goes against the government on Rwanda. Um, uh, no, in the Supreme Court. Yeah, the Supreme Court. Someone's replied, but did you like him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not so much. I mean, she did obviously got to win him at some point because she backed his leadership campaign, but obviously they've fallen out. Classic woman scorn, Toby. I mean, you couldn't relate, but... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bad breakup. And one of the things that seems to have made it worse is that he broke up with her by text, basically. And when you break yes. up with someone, you are supposed to do it in person. New number, who this? That's what he wrote when she tried to reply. Um, <laughs> Stop ghosting me. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I think we've... well. We'll deal with that maybe more next week because the listener will know more about it than us because I'll be able to read the whole thing at their leisure. Maybe we should get on to old Farage. He did a brilliant video. It was so funny and he acted it so well where he's getting the call and saying, mm. well, I haven't really got time to one. It's not really, you know, you, I always get this call about going to the jungle. How much? Yeah. <laughs> From the fee. It's so, it's so I thought good, it was honestly. very good. What was good about it is that um, I've never heard anyone say who's accepted the invitation to go into the jungle, that they're doing it for the money. They always come up with some completely bullshit reason, like, you know, I wanted to confront my fears or um, I needed a break and a time to work through some of the things that have been troubling me recently. Or I wanted to see if I could rise to the challenge and test myself. They never say the real reason, which is I did it for the money. Whereas he says, I'm doing it for the money, uh, which is refreshingly honest. 
Yeah, and what's interesting about that is he actually has a more legitimate reason than most people, which he's also said, which is he wants to appeal to young people yes. and get a whole new audience in politics, which obviously does because he wants yeah, but, to get elected. That's as true, but I think he's, leader. Uh, he said that to when I when I when I talked to him about it briefly in the green room at GB News when I was last in, and I said, "Yeah, you've got to do it, Nigel. You'll, you'll smash it." And um, and it looked as though he was going to do it. And he said to me, he wasn't just doing it for the money; he was doing it because it was an opportunity to connect with young people and help them understand issues like Brexit why it's important to cap migration and so forth. And, you know, you didn't often get a chance to be listened to by younger people on those issues. But I think he may be being slightly naive about that because I'm sure that whenever he drifts into politics, all of that stuff will just be cut. They won't, they won't allow any of that stuff to go out on air, I wouldn't have thought. Um, they'll just cut right. it. Interesting. It's getting very close to one of the reality shows that I pitched on our podcast a while ago. I think I had Culture Wars where it's, sort of Farage versus like Ash Saka. There's like two teams and they have to do different tasks in the jungle yeah. and things like that. It's getting very close. I mean, they, could, they could chuck Ash Saka in there and they'd already achieved that. And that would be great. Or Owen Jones. This would be great. Yeah, that, you know, Ash Saka or Owen Jones. Maybe, they, maybe, they, maybe they're going to surprise us. And um, yeah, uh, uh, that would be fantastic. Imagine if Owen Corbin, Jones Last Saka, minute they yeah. throw Corbin in as that, well. That would be brilliant. Yeah, he'd be perfect. Yeah, Farage versus Corbin. I mean, that's, it's not really a fair fight, is it? But it'd be bloody entertaining. <laughs> And if they can't get Jeremy, they'll get Piers Corbyn, definitely. Um, <laughs> let's just hope he doesn't get anything dodgy because we need him to survive. We need him to get out. I think he'll smash it. He'll come across very well like he always does. He'll have, you know, win, win over the nation. And people in there won't be able to tell that they're alienating the normies and the sort of uh, PMs, you know, the MPCs and the professional managerial class because you're locked in there, right? So if you're there getting on with Farage, you find yourself getting on with him naturally. You don't know that the world might be going, oh, how dare you get on with Farage? So I reckon some people will get sucked into that. What do you think? Mm. Yeah, uh, I think they will. I think he'll do well. I mean, uh, he, he, the, the, the bar he'll have to get over will be that he'll be chosen to do the challenge every night for the first kind of seven or eight days. And that'll be pretty exhausting. Um, uh, yeah. But uh, I think if he can get over that hump, he could do very well, maybe even come first, definitely top three. I mean, if Matt Hancock can get to the top three, Farage surely can. Uh, one conspiracy theory um, I had, Nick, about why Cameron has been appointed home, uh, Foreign Secretary is that actually, um, uh, now that Farage has gone into the jungle, Rishi Sunak sees an opportunity to hold a snap general election in late December, early January, um, because with Farage in the jungle, he won't be able to campaign for reform. So that'll suppress the reform vote and the number of 2019 conservative voters who defect to reform. And he wants to bring Cameron in because he wants an election winning team. And Cameron sort of won two elections, definitely won anyway in 2015 and is a good communicator. So he's actually gearing up now that he sees this opportunity because Farage is out of the picture. And my wife said to me, but surely if if Farage found out a general election was taking place, he'd quit the jungle, come back and start campaigning for reform. But in the jungle, I think you are kept from that kind of news. I don't think you're allowed access to anything which is going to tell you what's going on back home. I mean, if you know if a loved one dies or something like that, they'll tell you about it if your house is burgled. But but a general election is called. I'm not sure they would tell them that. So I think Farage would just be marooned in the jungle whilst the general election was fought out. Yeah, I don't think any ITV sector... Is it ITV? I've almost never watched it. I watched it when ITV, my friend yeah. Sean was on it. And my, I don't think any ITV executive would dare being the guy that gave Farage the call to tip him off and help his political career. Do you know what I mean? No, they wouldn't. Imagine wouldn't. doing that call. No. Nigel, you need to get out and win this thing. <laughs> I can't yeah. imagine. Yeah, good point. Very interesting. I think he'll do well. 
we don't have much time and I don't want to say Toby has to go because I've been attacked by Toby and some of our listeners for saying that, but he does have to go at some point. So I will have to press on and uh, very briefly mention that Alison Rose, by the way, forfeited 7.6 million pounds. So that was another big win for Farage and she had to scrap a load of her bonuses and Farage absolutely crushed that. Absurdly, she did still get 395,000 towards legal fees, 60,000 towards helping her with a new job, which is nice. And share based, a share-based award worth 850K. Obviously, that's Dame Allison Rose, former CEO of NatWest, who was going to get a ludicrous payout, but because of all the ridiculous bias against Nigel Farage that came out, she's going to lose it. But she's still going to get 1.75 million, by the way, plus all those bonuses I just mentioned. So still pretty absurd. Any comment, Toby? She'd be another good person to have in the jungle alongside Nigel. That's um, true. Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah. Justice has been done. Um, she couldn't have handled that crisis more badly. And, you know, CEOs are supposed to, you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's the big job to handle those sorts of crises, the PR, the media, the politics, you know, more deftly, more skillfully than their competitors. And she couldn't have done more poorly. Um, so I think it's reasonable that she's, uh, she's had to give up her bonus um, and isn't getting nearly as much as she'd hoped. Um, and it looks like Nigel's now going to sue NatWest and Coots for damages too. So yeah, he's having a good year. How far is he, do you think, from becoming a national treasure? He's like he doesn't mm. feel like he's a million miles away. He's close, yeah. And weirdly, he, he, he get there's I have said I've said it before, but there are less scathing pieces about him in, in things like the New Statesman than yeah. there are for other people. So I think there's even a grudging respect for him. That might go because you know you get the Trump treatment. Trump was loved and then became president was or ran for president and was hated mm. so Farage if he's a serious threat it will become hated because at the moment he's positioned as a kind of media figure and a kind of semi-comic figure he's kind of funny he's mm-hmm. going in the jungle mm. but if he ever does go and I think he will when the Tories collapse he comes in goes for leader as I've said Farage 2029 becomes PM after mm. the star ruins the country for five years then he'll be hated in a, to a new level. But for now, he is yeah. sort of yeah. verging on that. It's almost threat. like, it, it's funny, some politicians can pull that off, can't they? They kind of, when in politics, they're quite divisive, polarizing figures, as many enemies as friends. But then they leave politics and reinvent themselves, like Michael Portillo, Ed Balls, um, to a lesser extent. Well, he's still not that liked. But, uh, yeah. R- Rory Stewart. No, not that liked, but they've kind of, they, 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 they're definitely, they're definitely, definitely. Kind of on their way to becoming national treasures in spite of being quite divisive, political kind of weather veins in their day. And you can see Nigel, um, you know, um, uh, embarking on the same path. And if he wins, I'm a celeb. You know, I think that could be it. That could push him over the top official national treasure. But as you say, if he goes back into politics, Nigel derangement syndrome will kick back in instantly. Yeah, for now, it's all been Bradman derangement syndrome, which is a real thing. But let's see. Uh, very quickly, we've got to get to peak woke. I did promise a bumper peak woke. But there was Greta Thunberg, whose uh, mic was grabbed by a rampant Dutchman who said, I came here for a climate demonstration, not a political view. I, I, I did the accent much better before we came on. <laughs> I suddenly forgot how to do it. I suddenly turned into Arnold Schwarzenegger. I came here for a climate demonstration. It's quite hard to do. Um, it's not as good as my job. I came here for a bloody climate demonstration. I should just do my own <laughs> impressions, just do it there instead. Yeah, your, your original uh, Dutch impression was very good. Um, I mean, yeah, I lost it suddenly, <laughs> the one I did before we came on air. I came for a yeah. climate demonstration. Yeah, it was in my head then. I've yeah, lost it. Yeah. I came here for a climate demonstration. Yeah, I can't do it suddenly. Anyway, this guy took the mic off Greta because, quite rightly, he's like, why should I just want to talk about heat pumps 
and you know rising sea levels i don't want to talk about blooming israel and she started banging on about israel so he tried to grab the mic she started going calm down calm down <laughs> which is her new how dare you she sounds like 60 70 years old calm down it was really weird anyway she was saying no climate justice on occupied land and all this garbage and you know he did make a reasonable point why do you have to adopt the whole suite of views he's mm. like you know i'm not I don't care about Israel, Palestine, or I, I don't agree with your view on it. I just, I, I just want to talk about my climate obsession. Mm. But they can't. They have to adopt the whole thing and ultimately dismantle capitalism. Yeah, it's what Lionel Shriver calls pre-fixe politics. Like um, you can't. It's not. It's not like an a la carte menu in which you can pick and choose those opinions you agree with and reject others. You have to embrace the whole package or reject the whole package. And um, part of the climate. Part of the prefix a menu that includes uh, climate hysteria also includes being fanatically anti-Israel, bordering on anti-Semitic. Um, and she definitely seems to have chosen all her dishes from that prefix a menu. Um, uh, yeah, you would have thought that yeah, I sympathize with the Dutchman. I mean, you know, I would have thought that, you know, you're antagonizing some potential supporters of, um, you know, the, 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 the climate change agenda. Um, if you link it to being pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel, um, you know, you're going to alienate a lot of potential Jewish supporters for one thing. Um, so it does seem kind of short-sighted, but, uh, and you would hope that um, given Greta's apparent blind spot about um, the atrocities that Hamas committed on October 7th, that that would discredit her as a kind of climate spokesperson that's wheeled out to world leaders and presented to schoolchildren as a kind of Joan of Arc-like moral exemplar. Um, so I hope she's discredited herself. Um, the cartoon, well, the image that we put out on all our socials to promote today's update on The Daily Skeptic this morning was an image clearly generated by AI of her wearing a Hamas headband with the octopus on her shoulder and various um, Arab things on badges on her chest. But I'm slightly worried that um, I'll be accused of, you know, disseminating uh, disinformation by trying to persuade people that this is a real image. But I think it's transparently obvious that it's not a real image, that she hasn't yet posed, which she's not going to pose wearing a Hamas headband, and that the octopus thing was probably a mistake, and she's not going to make that mistake again. But you can imagine some people accusing me of deliberately deceiving people by using AI to discredit a political opponent. Yes, but I think phrases like various Arab things will get you out of trouble. Um, <laughs> uh, by the way, there was also a piece in the Telegraph. I'm 12 and I advise the UN on climate change. And this is a, like there's been a raft of people who have followed the Greta model and they've all, they're all truants. There's this one who's 12, Mad, Madvi Chitor, she's 12, or he or she, probably she, her, yeah. And she published a book at age seven, Is Plastic My Food? You can tell that's by a seven-year-old because it doesn't make sense. And uh, she, she's one of these many people that they, they played truant from school to attend a hunger strike in this case, led by Extinction Rebellion and Nancy Pelosi. Oh, no, this is a different one. That was a different person. There, there was Sophia Kiani, 21, who, who, who did a hunger strike that skipped school. Anyway, there's like a slew of skiving climate nutters copying Greta. So she's like now almost old hat. She's yeah, a, no, she, you know, she, the, she, she, she's now too old and experienced to be a credible spokesperson for 
um, net zero. So they've had to find a 12-year-old, someone who literally knows nothing and is very, very far from puberty, let alone adulthood, to be the kind of new Joan of Arc. I mean, it's, it is incredible, isn't it, that they think that you know, somehow it enhances the credibility of their cause if they can get 12 year olds to embrace it. It's like, it's like, uh, yeah, so it's, it's like, it's reminiscent of Mao's China, isn't it? Um, kind of uh, a sort of, uh, uh, it's kind of little junior revolutionary red guards kind of uh, hysterically embracing the latest thing. Yeah. And as you say, if, if the whole world's going to be underwater, I'm not really sure if it matters whether you're Israel or Palestine, if they're both going to be underwater. So they, it does undermine the whole thing. But you know what, Toby? Speaking of uh, pre-fixe and a la carte menus, I'd just like to tell you something about the Wild Goose Chef, who are our other sponsor today. And it may seem like we are living through a rather bleak era, but do not be dispirited. Gather family and friends to celebrate the milestones of life, birthdays, christenings, anniversaries, even funerals. Any excuse is a good excuse to have a party. The Wild Goose Chef specializes in intimate dinners and larger parties for up to 100 guests. If you're having a party, you need the Michelin-trained Wild Goose Chef to do the cooking. He'll cheerfully take the stress out of all aspects of planning your event so you can relax and enjoy the night. London, Berkshire, Wiltshire, and the Cotswolds, this guy puts himself about. If you're hosting a party, it makes good sense to get a well-trained, experienced, and reliable chef to do all the hard work. So call the Wild Goose Chef on 0779-658-164 or email him at joe at wildgoosechef.com. And the Wild Goose Chef is a proud member of the Free Speech Union and is happy to offer a 10% discount to other Free Speech Union members. So once again, it's 0779-658-164 or joe at wildgoosechef.com. So just thought I'd quickly tell you about that, Toby. And now let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones with the top stories of the week. So, Will, the first story you wanted to talk about today is um, a story by Chris Morrison, our environment editor, um, about uh, the uh, famous 99% figure, as in 99% of climate scientists agree with the anthropogenic global warming hypothesis. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so this is this always been a really dubious claim, of course. And now a group of Israeli scientists has examined this claim. The claim was originally made by a climate activist called Mark Linus, uh, who claimed that there was a 99%, uh, others have said 97%, anyway, it's around that figure, 97 to 99% consensus that humans cause uh, most global warming. But this group of Israeli scientists, led by uh, Yonatan Juby, who's a professor of chemistry and physics at Ben Gurion University uh, in Israel, uh, have said that they found massive flaws and biases at riddling Linus's work and say that the conclusions really don't follow from the data. All kinds of problems. Uh, they look at the abstracts of 3,000 papers. But in fact, what Linus and co assumed was that all papers that take no position on the question of humans causing global warming, they, they assumed were supportive of that hypothesis. I mean, that's quite that's quite unbelievable, really. And But that's the kind of biased assumption that they made. Uh, and so that by the time uh, you took out all of those, they found that it was only about 0.5% of the papers that explicitly uh, stated that recent warming. Oh, 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 oh! Hang on, Will. Hang on. You're conflating two papers. I think there. There's the Linus et al. paper, which claims 99% of climate scientists agree with the AGW hypothesis, and then there was another paper in 2013 published by John Cook, who claimed that 97% 
of climate scientists endorsed the uh, AGW thesis. And with respect to that second paper, not the first, so John Cook's paper, not Linus's paper, when people looked over the peer-reviewed science papers that that 97% claim was based on, when they excluded uh, the scientists um, who didn't explicitly, the papers that didn't explicitly say that recent warming was mostly caused by humans, the number fell from 97% to 0.5%. That was true of the Cook paper, but I'm not sure that was also true of the Linus paper. Yeah, that's right. Good catch, Toby. Yeah, that was a separate, very similar claim, 97% and a separate similar paper from 10 years ago by John Cook that found only 0.5% of the papers. Yeah, that's right. The The latest one from the Israeli scientists said that careful analysis of the papers suggests that the actual number of scientists agreeing with it is on the low side. Uh, they concluded. Therefore, they said, in their judgment, no claim for consensus can be made uh, from the data presented. Uh, so, yeah, a more cautious, um, a more cautious. Yeah, more cautious, but still quite bold. It's not merely that it's not 99%. It isn't even a consensus, as that word is commonly understood. Um, and Chris also points out that Mark Linus is uh, currently the communication strategist and climate lead for the Alliance of Science, which is a non-profit um, uh, funded by, primarily funded by the Bill and, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And in two, th- and he's 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 clearly a climate activist. In two thousand and one, he th- he he threw a cream pie into the face of Bjorn Lomborg, a, 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 a climate science sceptic. And um, he was also behind the PR stunt in 2009 when the government of the Maldives met underwater to raise fears about rising sea levels, which turned out to be um, a completely unfounded fear because since 2009, the Maldives have actually grown. They haven't sunk further underwater. Anyway, so that was a good story. You also wanted to talk about another rather shocking story, which is that one of the graphs used to justify the second lockdown, I think at the Downing Street press briefing in which the second lockdown was announced, was not only wrong. I think we knew the graph was wrong and the ONS had already pronounced the graph wrong. I think this was the fa- one of the graphs of doom, if not the graph of doom. So we already know, we already knew that that graph was dodgy. But the revelation, uh, as disclosed by Ben Warner, who was part of the data modeling team in Downing Street at the time, is that they knew at the time when they showed this graph at the press briefing that the data in the graph was out of date. Uh, so he spotted it. He spotted a screenshot of a SPIM modeling group's analysis paper had found its way into a cache of documents that were being used to brief the government and ministers, saw that actually the data in this graph was now considered out of date. The possibility of as many as 4,000 people being hospitalized every day as a consequence of Omicron, they'd already decided that that was a grotesque exaggeration. And he flagged that up to the prime minister and his advisors, and they used the graph anyway. That's right. Although it wasn't Omicron, it was um, it was a year before that. It was the November second lockdown, November twenty twenty. It was later called the Alpha Wave. Yeah, the um, the Kent COVID. Uh, yeah, and and this was pointed out by the UK Statistics Authority and David Spiegelhalter, Cambridge academic. Uh, they pointed out, as you've said, uh, afterwards. Um, so the the government was really wrapped for this. So this has been uh, has widely and acknowledged to be a serious error, a serious flaw. But as you've as you've described, what's really shocking and scandalous is that it was actually known within government 
government to senior government figures that it was in error before it even went out. And Angela McLean, who's now the chief scientific advisor, Patrick Valance's replacement, but at that time was a scientist at the Ministry of Defence. She joined with Warner in sounding the alarm, pointing out that it was, she actually says she raised the alarm and Warner himself went into the cabinet room uh, to raise the alarm to the prime minister uh, himself. So so literally taking it to the government uh, ministers in person, uh, Ben Warner that is, and yet it still went out uh, and they saw it on television later anyway. So really, really showing the level of propaganda, uh, I think, that the government had sunk to by that point, not only using graphs with out-of-date data, really, really unnecessarily, uh, unjustifiably scary graphs, but also that they were known by senior advisors and what they were told were false. Really serious. But as so often, Toby, major scandal, and yet just seems to just uh, disappear through the cracks and we we barely hear about it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a pretty clear-cut case of disinformation, isn't it? I mean, it's a case of a public authority disseminating information it knew to be false, and insofar as it contributed to the case for the second lockdown, was without question harmful. So the deliberate dissemination of harmful misinformation, I think, qualifies as disinformation. So for all the government's uh, highfalutin talk about um, uh, protecting the public from bad actors disseminating misinformation and disinformation, it is, of course, the baddest actor in the room. As so often. As so often. So last story we wanted to discuss, um, Will, is this story about AstraZeneca being taken to court over a defective COVID jab and the links between this jab and a fairly newly identified condition. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is the big story of a landmark court action, legal action, of those injured and bereaved by the uh, AstraZeneca, Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 uh, vaccine, taking AstraZeneca to court because they were, they had said that the claims were vastly overstated and that the, they were not warned sufficiently of the side effects, sometimes very serious side effects, and they've branded the the vaccine defective. AstraZeneca is being sued uh, in the High Court. It's a test case. And Jamie Scott, uh, who's a father of two, he suffered a significant permanent brain injury that's left him unable to work as a result of a blood clot from the jab. It's been established that it's from the jab. Uh, Many have joined with this particular uh, legal action, so it's not just just one person. They're all cases where it has been established uh, by the authorities, by coroners or by medical authorities, that the AstraZeneca vaccine was responsible for this new condition, uh, which is uh, blood clots, effectively, which we heard about, obviously, at the time, technically known as VITT, or vaccine-induced immune thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. I don't know if I said that correctly, but that's... Uh, uh, that's what it is. Uh, so major action. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens with this. It's a test case, as I say, and they're going to make the arguments as strongly as possible. Uh, it's not an mRNA jab, of course. It's a it's a DNA adenovirus vector jab. So uh, it's still a genetic-based vaccine, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine. It still sends DNA into your cells to cause them to produce the, um, the spike protein in the cells uh, in order to induce an immune response. So it is genetic based, but it doesn't use the mRNA, it uses uh, DNA instead. Slightly different make- uh, makeup, but still genetic based. Uh, so it will be interesting to see 
uh, how this goes. Interestingly, Toby, a lot of the a lot of the worry about COVID vaccines has been to do with the mRNA jabs rather than these DNA-based ones. That's mainly because I think in America almost all the jabs there are the Pfizer and Moderna jabs, which were mRNA-based. They did have a, a DNA-based one, which was the Johnson and Johnson one, but it was a relatively minor player, and the authorities have been much more dismissive um, of it and less less inclined to defend it. They never had the AstraZeneca vaccine in America, so I think that's partly what drives the. Uh, the concern about the mRNA uh, vaccines in particular is because of their dominance in the United States. But here, it's the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine that's being taken to court. Yes. Yeah. And the government has capped. How does that work? Are you across that? So the government has capped how much AstraZeneca can be forced by the courts to award to people who've suffered severe vaccine injuries. But there's another route by which AstraZeneca can be sued. Are you across that? Uh, yeah, so it's not that they had it capped. So what you're referring to there is the vaccine damage payment scheme. That's a, a government scheme, which is entirely separate to taking pharmaceutical companies to court over damages. It's it's essentially a grant scheme. So that's a separate thing again. So so there's a scheme that they set up, the vaccine damage payment scheme, uh, where people who have got certified serious injuries can ask the government to give them a, up to £120,000 uh, in a sense as a kind of compensation. Um, or so that they can look after themselves. But separately, anyone who thinks they've been injured by a medical product can take the maker of that product and those responsible to court, which is what's going on here. That's a separate to the vaccine damage payment scheme. As I understand it, they have been indemnified. But my understanding is that that means that pharmaceutical companies won't uh, have to pay that the government will pay any resulting liabilities. As, as I understand it, that's the situation. So if the people injured by the um, AstraZeneca vaccine are successful in their civil suit, it'll cost the British taxpayer. Um, as I understand it, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, before we go, Will, should we just um, briefly touch on this issue that's come up today about whether the Daily Skeptic is taking an editorial line on the Israel-Palestine conflict. And if it is taking an editorial line, what is that line? And what does taking that line mean? And how do we defend the taking of that line? Shall I go first, which is to say that um, I think it should be pretty clear to our readers that um, both you and I have a pretty clear position. Um, and we're both, um, to put it crudely, pro-Israel. Uh, we think um, Israel has a right to self-defense, that um, calling for a ceasefire um, is um, unacceptable because that would mean allowing Hamas to get away scot-free with what happened on October 7th and in all likelihood do it again. Uh, there can be um, no ceasefire until all the hostages have been returned and Hamas has effectively been disbanded slash destroyed. Um, and um, we also think that even though um, civilian casualties in Gaza are deeply regrettable, um, it would be wrong to condemn Israel um, for those civilian casualties because the reason there have been civilian casualties in Gaza is because Hamas has a clear policy of using human beings as human shields and it places its uh, military bases, arms depots, military staging posts in schools, hospitals, uh, civil facilities, uh, precisely in order to protect itself and to win propaganda victories when Palestinian civilians are inevitably killed when Israel tries to engage with 
Hamas. Um, and Hamas will have known that when it uh, launched its terrorist attacks on October 7th. So Hamas is ultimately responsible not only for the civilian deaths in Israel, but also for the civilian deaths in Gaza. Um, how do we justify taking an editorial line on it? How do we justify imposing uh, those views uh, on the Daily Skeptic? Well, I think it's, I think partly people's objection to that is based on a misunderstanding, which is that it's not that the Daily Skeptic takes no editorial position on any contentious issues um, and is just broadly skeptical about all views, uh, whether we agree with them or not. I think uh, we do take an editorial position on things like climate hysteria, wokery pokery, um, the safety and efficacy of the COVID vaccines, the effectiveness of the lockdown policy. Um, and I think this broadly falls within uh, that network of issues that we do take an editorial line on, because as many people have pointed out, there's a huge overlap between the woke and people who are demonizing Israel and taking the side, if not of Hamas, then certainly um, of um, political representatives of the Palestinian people um, against Israel. Um, and um, the reason for that overlap is that uh, rooted in um, uh, the what call it the um, uh, critical social justice ideology um, is a belief that um, uh, Israel is a settler colonial state and um, it is oppressing the Palestinians and is a kind of tribune of white supremacy and it's all sort of mixed up with this Manichaean morally um, twisted black and white view of the world in which everyone is either you know, a villain or a goodie, and the villains are almost always white, Western, uh, colonialist, and the bad. And, uh, 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 sorry, the baddies and, and the goodies are oppressed peoples, indigenous peoples, displaced peoples, what have you. So it seems to be there seems to be quite a clear overlap um, uh, uh, for for kind of theoretical reasons between the opposition to Israel and wokery pokery in its various guises. And I think that that's why we feel justified in taking an editorial position on this. But taking an editorial position doesn't mean um, entirely excluding anyone who disagrees with us. It just means the preponderance of pieces published, comments beneath the line and um, news stories we link to in the roundup, a preponderance of them will reflect our point of view rather than the opposite point of view is that is that broadly your understanding i think that's that's that's, that's very well put i think i think below the line i think is a bit more of a free-for-all um i'm not sure we have a, a a huge amount of control you know we are a, a free speech but i guess a lot of a lot of below the line commentators have been complaining when their comments which uh, we think cross the line are um removed so um but I think uh, our general policy is that, um, you know, if the comments are anti-Semitic, um, then we will remove them. Um, ditto if they're kind of, um, uh, you know, virulently anti-Muslim in a seemingly prejudiced way. Um, uh, and also if they're simply misstating the facts in some cases, as we understand them, we'll remove those comments. Or if, if, if they're straying into... Uh, conspiracy theories, which um, I think cross the line to suggest that Netanyahu knowingly allowed the attack on October 7th to take place for various Machiavellian real political reasons, I think is too cynical to um, uh, appear um, in the Daily Skeptic. I find that so distasteful, that, 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 that conspiracy theory. And so completely implausible that 
I think I, I think I'd approve the removal of, of comments running that up the flagpole, although maybe that's short-sighted. And I don't think, I'm not sure our moder- moderators do remove every uh, conspiracy theory along those lines, but um, it, I, we certainly wouldn't publish anything above the line saying that. Yeah, that, that's right. Clearly, um, not everyone who criticises Israel um, is being anti-Semitic either by an intention or in effect. Every country has to be open to open to criticism. But I think there is there is a difference with regarding it as, with regarding the the state of Israel, the, the world's only Jewish state, of course, as as illegitimate, as not having a right to exist or be there, uh, and not having a right to defend itself. And a lot of these calls uh, are for a ceasefire. Uh, they come out of that kind of narrative. And in opposing it, we're taking a stand against wokery, as you say, and against uh, the anti-Semitism that seems to be sadly rife among woke or progressive, as they call it, movements. That's, of course, not saying that everyone who takes those kinds of views is is being anti-Semitic, either in intention or effect, but it is, it's where it comes from. And that's why we take a, that's where those kind of narratives are really rooted, a lot of them. And that's why we take a, a, a position against it, I think. Yes. And I suppose um, another reason um we feel justified in having an editorial position on the conflict is that we are generally pro-Western civilization and against the enemies of Western civilization. That means being pro-democracy, pro-free speech, ideally uh, pro the rule of law, pro-limited government, etc. Anti-tyranny, anti-murderous, genocidal, terrorist cults um so i think uh, generally we 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 aren't we don't we don't feel obliged to be editorially neutral when it comes to the conflict between you know a liberal democracy and a terrorist organization enthralled to a death cult which can engage in the kind of barbaric actions that hamas terrorists did on october 7th um uh, so I think that that's sort of another reason why we've, we we feel justified in taking an editorial position on it. We are in favour of Western civilization and against its enemies, and pretty unapologetic about that. Absolutely, and it's worth bearing in mind, of course, that we're, we're not saying anything. We're not taking any position different uh, to what the, the Labour Party, for example, takes. Uh, they're they're also against a ceasefire and pro uh, supporting the state, the existence of the state of Israel and its right to defend itself. Not that we are obliged to, of course, follow uh, the Labour Party, but it's just worth uh, bearing in mind that it's not like it's uh, it's it's not particularly partisan position. No, that's true. Okay. Anyway, um, no doubt that will provoke some discussion, but. Um... I'm glad we aired it here. Okay, Will, thank you very much for telling us about the top stories of the week. Great, thanks, Toby. All right, that was Will. Now I'm back with Toby, and I believe we have one more ad today. Yes, this is an ad from the Stack Assistant. So two weeks ago in 1517, Martin Luther posted his theses on the Wittenberg Church door, an act that changed the world. Back then, a corrupt parasitic theocracy was strangling European civilization, leeching life savings from its subjects through unlimited issuance of relics and the social credit tax of indulgences. Disseminated by the printing press, Luther's ideas resulted in the separation of religion and state. Two weeks ago, in 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto posted his Bitcoin thesis on the cypherpunk mailing list, an act that also changed the world. These days, a corrupt parasitic kleptocracy is strangling global civilization, leeching life savings from its subjects through unlimited money printing and the stealth tax of inflation. Decentralized by the internet, Nakamoto's ideas will result in the separation of money 
and state. The fiat money era and the societal corrosion it causes are coming to an end as the Bitcoin reformation gathers momentum unstoppably. At The Stack Assistant, we offer free advice to help you stack your first sats, as the subunits of Bitcoin are called, and securing your stack into self-custody. If you want help, email The Stack Assistant on thestackassistant at pm.me. That's thestackassistant at pm.me. All right, and now let's go to everyone's favorite section. It's Peak Woke. So, Toby, quite a few Peak Wokes this week. I have promised a bumper section, which we, I'm not sure we have time for, but we can do it bumper in terms of the sheer quantity because I, we have so many. I don't know. Do you want to start? Yeah, I'll just rattle through some of my Peak Wokes. So I have got a lot this week. So Lloyds of London has announced it's uh, set aside £52 million uh, to compensate the defendants of slaves for its, quote, significant role in the slave trade. Uh, The owners of Miss Universe have filed for bankruptcy following a diversity drive that allowed trans women to compete. Turned out fans of that particular pageant did not want to see men in bikinis. Who knew? Um, uh, A school has told parents, and it's quite extraordinary, Nick, that this should be celebrated in papers like the Daily Mail and the Telegraph as a return to common sense in schools. I think one headline billed it as a lesson in common sense. So a school told parents it's not going to be providing litter trays for pupils who identify as cats. So apparently a school's decision, a head teacher's decision, not to provide cat identifying pupils with litter trays, presumably so they could do their business in the trays instead of going to the school toilets. That's apparently a major blow for common sense in yeah, schools. It seemed to stem from a prank, didn't it? A social media prank, and then they had to address it. But it doesn't say what happens to the people who identify as litter trays. I mean, they're excluded. Yeah, poor buggers. Um, and uh, yeah, they won't. The school won't be providing cats to sit on them. Um, anyway, um, uh, and finally, um, uh, I was a big backer of the Restore Trust, um, a group within the National Trust, which was trying to restore common sense to the otherwise woke National Trust. And lots of people on Twitter, now X, were celebrating the fact that during the um, recent elections within the National Trust, none of the candidates on the Restore Trust slate, including Jonathan Sumption, managed to get elected. And uh, they were crowing about this as though this was a great triumph against kind of these far-right nutters like Lord Sumption. Um, and, uh, but, but then a couple of days later, the National Trust, you know, as if to prove that the Restore Trust are completely right about how the National Trust leadership has gone off the rails, the National Trust issued a Christmas um, uh, calendar, which included, um, no, an annual calendar, that's right, which included various religious festivals like Diwali, Ramadan, but didn't include any of the Christian festivals. So Easter, Christmas, they weren't on it. Like, you know, as if to prove that the Restore Trust are just 100% on the money about the National Trust's leadership being captured by woke nut jobs. Um, anyway, so that, I, I, there are a ton more, but you go ahead. Yeah, no, that was a good one. And the Express said uh, Christmas and Easter excluded from National Trust inclusion calendar, which just puts it perfectly in one <laughs> yeah, sentence. Good, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and they claimed the National Trust that it was it was about appealing to everyone rather than a minority, which they do, of course, by alienating 
all Christians and all just sort of vaguely Christian people in this country. They say the National Trust is for everyone, but you've alienated Christians. Disgusting garbage. Um, another one was children told read woke as schools study books that claim white people invented racism. So this is the Scottish government. It's being trialed in the South Ayrshire Council and they're reading books like My Skin, Your Skin, which states that racism started a long time ago when white people wanted to have more control over people who were not white. So obscene levels of racism being promoted in Scotland. Another book says being racist against white people is not a thing. So incredible, really. You're demoralizing, let's face it, the 90-something percent white population of Scotland, and you're just being openly racist, and you're creating psychological problems in children. It's a sort of genocidal indoctrination. You're getting them to see an entire group as inhuman from a young age. It's about as sick as it could possibly be. So, yeah, I'm not, not very on the fence on that one. Um, you've got um, the appointment of trans woman, i.e. a man, as boss of womb charity, worrying and insulting the endometriosis South Coast. Uh, well, not the, they're just what they are. Endometriosis South Coast have hired this person, Steph Richards, who's a sort of bloke that is annoying on Twitter, who's a, a trans, you know, man that wants to be a woman. And this person has said that puberty blockers are not dangerous and are entirely reversible, completely false, of course, and has even said that man, woman, and child are social constructs. Well, when someone starts saying child is a social construct, I go massive red flag, because why <laughs> would someone want to do that, and where does it yes. lead? So, yeah, so and the, to, to employ that person in what should be a woman's role is, of course, appalling. Uh, I don't know if you've got any more, Toby. I've got a couple more I could throw at you. Well, One is... The, go you on. go on. I was going to mention well, uh, yeah. the New, Newcastle United. So um, okay. a woman has been questioned by Northumbria police um, because uh, of various gender critical things she said on X, such as your weekly reminder that trans women aren't women. Um, nothing even approaching unlawful, um, but typically Northumbria police um, brought her in for questioning. Um, uh, the duty solicitor advised her that uh, she shouldn't repeat these things again on X, even though there's nothing unlawful about them. Um, Harry Miller and Fair Cop have been on the case. They've been robustly defending her uh, and have done a good job. And the police have decided now that there is um, going to be no further action. But when um, uh, Newcastle Football Club, of which this woman is a big fan, got wind of the fact that she'd been um, questioned by the police about these gender critical things she said on Twitter, they suspended her as a member of the club. And I know from being a member of QPR that if you're a member as well as a season ticket holder, you get kind of opportunities to buy early bird tickets to oversubscribe games like Champions League games. Not that that applies to QPR, but it does apply to Newcastle. Um, and uh, so she's really upset about the fact that um, she no longer can be in the ballot for these tickets. Um, and even though the police have said no further action um and she hasn't even been you know arrested let alone charged um newcastle still haven't reinstated her um pretty shocking um and uh i hope that um she will be reinstated soon yeah we it's get particularly down. shocking oh, it's it, 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 particularly shocking given that you know majority shareholders in newcastle football club are saudis you know you wouldn't have thought there'd be much tolerance for trans women or trans men in saudi arabia um uh, so why is the football club kind of persecuting gender-critical women for questioning, you know, gender identity ideology. Yeah, 
I missed it because um, we didn't get to cover it on headliners because we have a sort of quota now of trans stories because we do so many and that one got taken out and replaced with the one I just read. So yeah, we didn't get to do that. But yeah, another shocking peak. Well, teachers scared of banter in UK schools as sharing jokes with students clamped down. So the Anti-Bullying Alliance has found that more than three in five agree there's a fine line between banter and bullying. I mean, if teachers can't banter anymore, what is the point? When we were at school, teachers bantered. That was the point. It mainly revolved around calling various pupils gay. Unthinkable now. <laughs> and uh, I remember not just pupils, but one one teacher was going through certain kings in history saying which ones were gay. And then one of them he, he described, I remember, as a fat idiot. And then another one he said, another backs against the wall job. Imagine saying that now as a teacher. But, you know, it was fun back then. It was a different time. But uh, it's the line between banter and bullying. This last piece, Peak Woke, I've got, maybe it pushes the definition of Peak Woke, but I thought I'd bring it in. Obese female dummy with big breasts built for medical students for realistic training. So we've become so fat now that we have fat mannequins for training on. Instead of actually tackling fatness, we're just like, just make the mannequin fatter. <laughs> that's that Peak Woke or is it Peak Decline? I think it's probably yeah somewhere in between. Incidentally, Nick, do you think we need to rename this section? Because each week there seem to be kind of more examples of peak woke, which suggests that woke is still very far from peaking. Um, it just seems to yes. be metastasizing and ever growing, like you know the average weight of the British population. I mean, peak woke may have been an optimistic uh, title for this section of the show. Maybe yeah. you should just call it ongoing, inevitable endless woke or weak poke we could bring that back um yeah you, you're right but the peak woke it never really meant that technically but i see your point um do you have any more shall i go and review some reviews quickly let's review let's let's go to review the reviews all right because as we all know toby has to go people told me not to say <laughs> it so i'll just say it more guys that's how i am so this one says unfollowed anti-everything has written unfollowed five stars got it to have to say goodbye after this week's show as toby less so nick reveal we are fundamentally so different regarding ugly islamism the left's appeasement of it and its ruinous consequences on britain toby quite happy it seems with it all wow i always was team james and had to put up with tobes in london calling but defending something that is really quite indefensible was too much for me i enjoyed it for a while good luck p.s gave you five stars nick for the banter and sorry that one's slightly harsh but what i'm doing is sparing you the actual really harsh ones because there's another one that two stars that one still gave us five stars and there's another one who's reduced their five star to two star and they're both saying because basically toby you were just far too pro migration multiculturalism and you did write a sort of typically contrarian toby piece in the spectator like why i'm optimistic about multiculturalism so i just sort of give you the right of reply on on some of these but i'm sparing you some of it because we can't go into it all but they're basically saying your insouciance on this is becoming unbearable to quote someone else. Well, I think um, sometimes I am guilty of um, naive optimism, but I also think um, people on the other side on this issue are sometimes guilty of catastrophizing too. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not in favour of uh, unlimited immigration. I think immigration should be controlled. Um, and I think we ought to enforce some kind of points-based system. We're trying to do that at the moment unsuccessfully. We should reduce both illegal and legal inward migration. Um, But I don't think we ought to skew it. So we particularly reduce inward migration from Muslim-majority countries. I don't think we should have a kind of racially screwed uh, skewed migration, migration policy. Um, you know, I, of course, I recognise that there are problems with um, mass immigration, particularly from Muslim majority countries. 
and they, they, some of those problems have appeared on our streets every Saturday since October the 7th. And I recognize that that's a challenge and uh, uh, something we urgently need to address. But I don't think it means that multi, we have to conclude that Britain's multi-ethnic, multi-faith society cannot continue, cannot survive, that the only solution is mass deportations of people who don't kind of meet some kind of British kind of loyalty test. Um, And I don't think that's a particularly extreme or indefensible position. I mean, maybe I'm being complacent, too complacent about the challenges thrown up by um, what's been revealed about many of our... um, uh, Muslim areas like um, Dewsbury and Bradford. Bradford apparently sent, I think, 32 coaches, 32 coach loads of people to participate in the pro-Palestinian protest. But as I said in The Spectator, uh, you know, it's only probably quite a small minority of the pro-Palestinian protesters that are being openly anti-Semitic. Um, and in turn, the protesters are not representative of Britain's four plus million uh, Muslims, um, a majority of whom are patriotic, want the same things as non-Muslims do, want to fully integrate and the rest of it. Um, so, um, you know, I can see that many listeners will disagree with me, but I think you put many of those arguments last week and we had quite a, a good discussion about it. Yeah, that's the only thing I find strange. The listeners are entitled to their opinion, but when you the idea you have to unfollow just because you disagree too much with Toby, I don't, I don't quite see that. I mean, you've got me here still saying base stuff and and like, why do you have to agree totally with everyone? I mean, it's to listen to it. I don't quite get that, but it's up to the listener, obviously. So, hey, can't win them all. We still have some great reviews. Excellent podcast, five stars. Love this podcast. And I tend to agree more with Nick. He loves this country. Yes, please, to Culture Corner, which I enjoyed on London Calling. Thank you both. They're more pro-Nick this week, but there's certainly been weeks where they're scathing about Nick and more pro-Toby. So overall, still got our 4.8 out of 5 rating, and we thank you for all your reviews. And, um, you know give Toby a chance to reply in which he has done there. So even though I disagree with him as well, but um, December 11th, we should have our live show. No tickets out yet, but pencil it in. It's a Monday weirdly, but December 11th at the uh, Hippodrome will be our live weekly skeptic. So that's in almost a month, just under a month. So uh, in fact, so December 11th for that, check out my interview with Dave Rubin on the current thing from the art festival, just released a video and audio for that. Pretty cool to get Dave Rubin at the art festival. Even if you don't agree with everything Dave says either, check out the interview. It's uh, very interesting. And of course, if you want to help me out, go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon and buy me a digital coffee. And uh, it basically just means a donation for those that don't get that. And uh, and leave a comment, buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon and go to my current thing podcast. Toby, what do you want to promote? Yeah, no, I think um, just to reiterate, that we are going to be having our second live recording of the Weekly Skeptic at the Hippodrome on December the 11th, which, as you say, is a Monday. Um, it'll be at Lola's, which is the downstairs bar at the Hippodrome. The Hippodrome, of course, is in Leicester Square, and there is a bar at Lola's, and drinks aren't very expensive, particularly not by West End standards, because it is a casino. Um, so they want people to get drunk and go and gamble. Um, so drinks are quite cheap. Um, so, um, and we'll be selling tickets for £25 a pop. There are only going to be 180 tickets on sale because that's the capacity of the venue. It's actually a really nice venue, proper stage, great sound system, um, uh, and um, should be a really fun night. I imagine afterwards you and I will hang around and have a bit of a booze up. So um, should be a great occasion, nice opportunity to have an early Christmas party um, with um, your favourite podcasters. 
and yeah, we'll, and as us. you say, we, <laughs> and we, we'll be advertising those tickets for sale shortly. We're going to be up on Eventbrite in the next uh, few days. Okay, is that is that everything, Toby? Well, know you know, um, you uh, I'd, I'd still like people to sign the October Declaration, um, expressing their solidarity with Britain's Jews, condemning anti-Semitism here and in the Middle East, urging the BBC to call Hamas a terrorist organisation. Um, uh, to do that, go to BritishFriendsOfIsrael.org and you can sign the declaration already. More than 75,000 people have. Um, I, with some other people, am in the process of organising um, a um, march in London on Sunday, um, November 26th. More details about that soon. If you follow me on Twitter, at Toadmeister, I'll be posting a flyer about that shortly. Um, and of course, don't forget to go to The Daily Skeptic. And if you enjoy the content of The Daily Skeptic, make a donation. If you donate £5 or more per month, you get to comment below the line. And that's dailyskeptic.org. All right, brilliant. And that Suella letter is still breaking, by the way. And Jacob Ismogger just said, Suella doesn't mince her words, which is just funny. So uh, maybe there'll be more about that next week. But until then, stay sceptical. Stay sceptical. Stay sceptical.